Welcome to the show. I want to do something a little bit different with a series of conversations with some of the brightest, smartest liberty people I know who have widely divergent views on the debate over Israel and Palestine and what happened in the, in the Gaza Strip. And I want to challenge all of you to do something that most Americans can't do anymore, which is listen and engage and debate with, with views that are at polar ends of each other on this subject. And that's something that we could probably do here. So you're going to be hearing from various people with smart opinions, um, some of whom you'll love, some of whom you'll hate, some of whom hopefully change your mind and make you think a little bit more about this very difficult, maybe impossible issue that's happening in Israel. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you, Thank you for having us. And, and I want to just go around the, the circle here, and I'll, I'll start with, uh, with Moshi. Um, tell, tell everybody who you are and, and where you're located right now. All right. So I'm Moshe Gorin, nowadays a regulatory analyst at the Coalit Policy Forum, and I'm located in Jerusalem, Israel. Uh, Lior? Uh, I'm Lior Abuzbul, uh, currently located in uh, Shdod, Israel. So I'm on the line, and um, I work for Credit Policy Forum as well as the head of events and projects. And full disclosure, you guys are married. Yes. yes. Which which means that your your give and take and perhaps your critique of each other will be a little more unchecked. We have uh, to agree with each other, yeah. Boaz, how are you? Yeah, uh, my name is Boaz Arad. I'm uh, managing uh, of the Ayn Rand Center Israel and the Atlas Award, which award the best Israeli startup, which is a special prize every year, and an educational project that called Atlas Juniors. I mention it because this educational project is concentrated on the southern periphery and our kids were directly affected by the Hamas attack uh, on the 7th of October. And uh, it may come to the discussion. And I'm uh, living in a place that called Sharetikwa, which is uh, in the middle of Israel, 15 kilometers eastern to Erzeliya, northern side of Tel Aviv, and to the east side of, of the, uh, the western side of the Shomron, Samaria. So we, we all know each other, and, and one of the reasons why I specifically wanted to invite you guys to this conversation is, and I've had this, co this conversation with other guests specifically about the, the war in Israel and, and Hamas and, and Palestine and, and the Gaza Strip and all of the issues that we're dealing with from a, a U.S. perspective. But one of the challenges um, in the social media world is to actually understand what is real and what is fake, what is propaganda, what is actual news coverage of what's happening. And, and the only thing I can figure out for sure, other than, than sort of letting um, the fact checkers ultimately vet things and figure out what's real and what's not, is, is to talk to people who I trust, who are actually on the ground, and and we're still going to get your personal perspective on things, but but in in many ways that's that's going to be fundamentally true as opposed to whatever people might see on social media. Um, 
and we also we've we've all known each other for quite some time. Um, Boaz, I think the first time we met was in 2013, which was my first trip to Israel, and we we uh, we jointly started a tea party organization in Tel Aviv. I don't know if you remember this event. Very much so. Yes, yeah. and it was. And this- this evolved into the Israeli freedom movement that uh, promote the free market initiative in Israel and doing so, yeah. And, and Moshe and Lior, we met at a Students for Liberty conference in January of 2020, um, which in, a lot of, in, in multiple ways was, was much happier times. It's before the entire world shut down. Um, with with lockdowns and and both of you guys continue to promote free market policies in your current jobs. If if one or both of you could explain what your think tank does, um, sure, I can do it. Or Leo, if you want, go ahead. All right. Um, basically, the Coalit Policy Forum is the biggest think tank in Israel, which basically deals in several areas, uh, mostly speaking about. Um, the Jewish identity of Israel as a Jewish state, uh, free markets, personal liberties, and uh, basically promoting the ideas of, of liberty and, uh, and, and free market, basically, capitalism in Israel. Did he get it right, Lior? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll start with you, Lior. Where were you on October 7th, and, and what was your perspective just on that day? Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, I was in Jerusalem, uh, with Moshe at our apartment and, uh, we were both, uh, waking up by sirens, by the alarm of, of missiles, actually. Um, with our pajamas ran out to the staircase since we knew that we don't have a safe room in our apartment. Uh, but and then there we met our neighbors telling us that the building we recently moved to uh, has a shelter, which was a nice surprise. There we met all the other neighbors, everyone shocked, shocked. And I think it was 8 a.m., but we didn't know at the time what's going on. Like we just woke up <laughs> and it was just a Saturday. It's like a Sunday, so it's a, just a lazy day. Uh, we were there at the shelter, and then we started uh, looking on our phones and seeing uh, some disturbing messages. Uh, one from my parents telling me not to leave the house in any case because um, there is a, uh, there are terrorists that entered Gaza, uh, entered from Gaza to Israel. And I remember at the time thinking that it's maybe like ten, maybe like twenty something that it's a, it's, a, it's a small event that the army will probably take care of within an hour or so. I had no idea what's going on. Only later on, when we started getting more uh, footage from sceneries and more news, we actually realized that it's something bigger than that and that some kibbutzim in the border with Gaza were practically conquered by Gazans, by terrorists, by Hamas. Uh, and the other, the rest of the day was very stressful, mainly trying to <clears throat> realize that everyone, everyone I know is okay, 
a lot of communication via WhatsApp, via phone, phone calls coming in. Uh, yeah, very stressful time. How, um, how often do you end up in, in shelters? Like how often do these things happen where the sirens go off and you're, you're told to shelter? <laughs> Um, in Jerusalem, it doesn't happen so often. So when it does, you know, something serious is about to happen. Uh, where I am right now in Ashdod, I had a siren here yesterday. So, so it's unusual in Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. But not in, in the first couple of days, if I may barge in. So the first couple of days of the war. So we had like about 10, uh, different sirens, which is completely unusual for Jerusalem. We had never had that many especially in, not in such a short time. In Ashdod, they have been used to having that every few years, but in the beginning of the war, they had tens every day. Yeah, and also there's a difference. When the sirens in Jerusalem uh, are going on, you have about a minute and a half to get to a shelter. Here in Ashdod, we have 45 seconds. And Boaz, where, where were you? Well, for me, uh, I got a wake-up a call and videos on 7.30 in the morning from my partner to the Atlas Junior Project. She is a schoolmaster of gifted and outstanding students from all over the Ashkelon area and the kibbutzim around and so on. And she lives in Ashkelon. And I got from her the videotape showing how a rocket exploded in their in the parking lot of the building and the building was shaking and the car started to explode one after the other in the parking lot. And it was under constant barrage of rockets and alarms in Ashkelon. And uh, we realized something uh, which is not regular. I, I mean, it's crazy to say that it's regular to get some missile attack from time to time in Israel, but this was out of the pattern. Thousands of missiles from all over. And, uh, and then I, um, if I want to concentrate on my uh, inner process, I would say that I was deeply worried, deeply worried for the life of the students living in the road, for example. Leo said about 45 minutes, they have 45 seconds. In Snow, they have about 15 seconds. And uh, even that wasn't enough when terrorists were running all over the street, getting into houses and shooting people. And, uh, and uh, what I uh, feared most was, first of all, it was, uh, I would say a shocking surprise to see the lack of preparedness and the, and the absolute confidence that we are okay, everything is okay. The Hamas is uh, willing to find some solution and to get alone. And this is what we've been, uh, in a way, uh, indoctrinized to think uh, for uh, the last uh, decade that we settling everything, that we getting to some peaceful uh, coexistence, maybe small step from the other. But we got a very, uh, a very strong slap of reality on our face. 
And first of all, change of perspective to every Israeli. We were busy with fighting each other about a certain element of uh, how to formulate element within a certain law. And people thought this is the end of the world and democracy and freedom and so on. And suddenly we saw that we are in an existential threat in Israel and how close it could be. And also there was a worried, a war, uh, I was worried that the inspiration that ignites the enemies of Israel all around the world will create a, a hunting season. I mean, uh, this could be a, a, a multi-front event, not only Gaza front. And of course it became also Hezbollah and Syria and Lebanon event, but it could be much more worse. I didn't know how far it will get. And uh, nobody in Israel realized how far it will get, and nobody understand how come the army was not ready for it. So this was a shock, and reality, I would say, uh, uh, a very uh, traumatic reality check. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. There's, uh, a, and I want to, I want to get directly into preparedness and and why the Israeli government seemingly wasn't prepared for this event. Um, when when we were there, and when Terry and I were there in 2020, um, we had long conversations and and meals and and talked a lot about about living with this threat. And the impression I had, I'm I'm not an expert on this stuff, but the impression I had, um, the assumption I made was that everybody was fully prepared. And, and living in a world where the expectation was something like this could happen and and people were trained there's there's mandatory uh, military um, inscription um, you, you're all trained to use weapons and 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 I believe at the time and correct me if I'm wrong but but my assumption was that that is the Israeli citizenry was well armed and and apparently that has changed has there been, a change in policy regarding um, um, gun ownership yeah. in Israel? Sure. Um, would you like, <laughs> Lior or Moshe, would like to refer to it? or? Yeah. Let's well, start with- for sure. Basically, uh, in the past, it was very common that every town and sometimes even every neighborhood had some kind of like emergency unit that was armed, usually with long weapons, in order to be able to contain this type of events. And in the past few years, there has been a policy to um, lessen the amount of long weapons that, ha- that are in civilian hands. So many of these places around Gaza, especially, were found themselves with only handguns, in many cases, trying to fight uh, the, the, the invasion, basically. And that's besides the fact that if you want to have a, a weapon in Israel in general, as a civilian, so you need to pass very specific criteria you need to be an ex-officer, you need to live in a dangerous area, you need to have a specific type of job. So if you're just a 
average Joe living in the center of Israel, you probably don't have much chance to have a weapon of your, of your own. So it happens that in many cases, so a lot of people are underarmed and they don't have the ability to contain this type of events, basically. And yeah. I must add yeah. that okay. uh, when Moshe refers to danger, uh, danger areas uh, to live in in order to meet criteria for a handgun, uh, that uh, did not con uh, include uh, the Gaza area. I mean, it was uh, right about Judea and Samaria, but not about Gaza area, which the state of Israel didn't look as a, as a threat or as a dangerous place to live in, yeah. beside the rockets, you know, and then you have the same thing. But nothing, nothing more than that. Like, there was no scenery that they imagined that terrorists will actually enter Israel from Gaza. Yeah, and I, I can tell that... Uh... Within the Israeli public, the restriction on owning uh, weapons are much tougher than in the U.S., even though it's much more dangerous to live in Israel. In Sderot, it was not considered to be a dangerous place, even though it's a, a minute drive from Gaza. Nobody even assumed that something like that could happen, even though there was alert. And uh, let's say a few... Uh, officers and uh, and uh, let's say low rank soldiers that were uh, in state on uh, Gaza or in the intelligence warn about the possibility and the fact that they heard the Hamas practicing to uh, to carry out this type of operation and nobody listened. I think I think the higher hierarchy of the Israeli army, intelligence and politicians believe to bury, prefer to bury their head in the sand. And this is, nowadays we refer it to the, to after the war uh, consideration, because there will be a need to do the reckoning and checking and analyzing and draw the conclusion and pay the prices for this negligence. We had the ability in terms of technical ability to defend ourselves, we don't we didn't have the mental preparedness and the and the let's say and we avoid reality and this is the punish for avoiding reality. When you try to twist reality according to what you like to have. And we all aspire to peace and quiet and um, and I think this affects many of the Israeli mindset. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So, so as was there, to, to go back to gun control, because I want to go where Boaz is going here, but to go back to gun control, has there been an effort to increase the difficulty of getting a gun since I was there? Was it already happening? Because it, it sounds like there is this sort of uh, dreamy idea that the safest Israel would be unarmed which seems seems like an un, insane policy to me. 
in, in Pilot Policy Forum, uh, we research the subject a lot, and um, it's not it's not a, a necessarily a governmental thing because in the past several years, uh, actually they they were trying to lower the criteria. Uh, the main problem is that we have there is a lot of illegal weapon on the street that cause a lot of of crime. Um, also. In order to meet criteria for handgun, they're trying to create a legislation that will not be, I would say, racist, uh, I mean, but still excludes a population that may be dangerous since you have Arab citizens in Israel, uh, government, I believe, don't want to arm them as well. And in order to create criteria that is not 100% racist, it's, uh, it's almost impossible for, let's say, me, eventually get a handgun. So it's I cannot read that, that the twisted outcome of this policy was that within the Arab population, there is a lot of un- illegal uh, Uh, weapons, what's so-called not licensed, and among Israelis there are uh, much less than that. It was uh, about a year ago, it was uh, the estimate were that there is about uh, uh, 500,000 handguns and uh, rifles within the Arab uh, illegal ones, and about 100,000 100,000 or 120,000 legal ones. Now, uh, after the attack of the 7th of October, it was changed radically and immediately. And I know that nowadays the department that deal with uh, approving uh, gun licensing is dealing with more than 200,000 requests from Israelis from over, all over the place. Because Israelis found themselves locked within a shelter, trying to make some kind of weapon from a kitchen knife or, or sticks or something like that. And, uh, and we know also that in some kibbutzim, like Zikim, and the, there is another uh, kibbutz that the uh, readiness, uh, let's say, uh, there was a group of... Uh, uh, of, uh, I would say, a protection, a, a citizen guard of the kibbutz had weapons in their home, they repelled the attack on their kibbutzim. In other places, all the weapons were locked in a central place that they could not reach under the attack. Also, the locking of the weapon in one central place was, according to military and government uh, rules, in order to avoid theft and uh, because of the worries that it will be uh, taken by illegally by thieves or robbers or whatever. It's, um, I can, go ahead, Moshi. Yeah, I was just going, going to give an anecdote that now that the regulation basically changed on what criteria you need to meet in order to get a legal weapon, so a very big part of the population entered into the into the pool of people that can get a weapon, and me included. I was a tank driver in the IDF. 
So, and even though I was a combat soldier and I have been trained in weapons for quite a long time, I did not meet the criteria because I didn't have uh, uh, advanced enough training in small weapons in order to be able to be eligible for one. So that, which was absurd completely. And now and that they lowered the standards, so now yeah. I'm able to do it. And I, of course, I applied I mean, in the moment that I could. Another, another level of craziness is that nobody in the army getting training on handguns. Usually they use a long military guns, and this is very different. If somebody knows, it's, they behave very differently than handguns. And you need to conduct, conduct yourself differently when you're dealing with handguns. So I guess nobody can really say that he's expert after finishing the army if yeah. he didn't yeah. practice on handgun. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking of uh, go going back to the the Tea Party days. There was a book that we were all reading um, in Tea Party organizations called The Starfish and the Spider. And The Starfish and the Spider was about the power of decentralized networks um, and the fragility and potential for fa failure of centralized networks. And, and the metaphor was explicitly about terrorist networks and how a, a decentralized attack um, is, is, is ultimately, um, it's ultimately ineffective to try to stop that with a, with a central plan. And it, it seems sort of obvious to me, and, and we, we, we surely all agree on this, but for any non-libertarians watching this show, it seems pretty obvious to me that the, the citizens of Israel should be, as a fundamental right, be allowed to defend themselves from, from foreign attack, people in their neighborhoods, in their homes. And, and it, hopefully yeah. that policy is changing, but it, it just seems like the most possibly dangerous policy for the Israeli government to, to continue. Indeed, and we know about a lot of heroic stories of Israeli citizens that, that they had a handgun or something to defend themselves and they just got into their car and drove from Jerusalem, from other places, they drove to the south, they arrived before the army and helped the, the unprotected the citizens in the kibbutzim and the, in Sderot and other places to evacuate, to protect them, to repel some of the... Uh, terrorist attacks and so on. So there is a lot of heroic stories like that. And uh, you can only imagine if every second person could have some weapon, they could uh, eliminate this attack much faster. Yeah. It I would also like to add to that, that the current government, current coalition is trying to lower the, the criteria and the main... Um, the main people who go against it is uh, women's rights organizations and the opposition. Uh, they still think that uh, Israelis shouldn't be armed even after October 7th. Yeah, yeah. it's a kind of insane, uh, insane politics that uh, no amount of reality will change your mind. It's uh, and. Uh, uh, until you'll be either dead, taken hostages, or hostage, or something like that. Yeah. So, like a personal story, um, Terry and I, we've we've always been pro Second Amendment in the American context, and and very much um, fundamentally supporting people's right to defend themselves. But but we didn't go around the 
the, the very difficult process of, of owning handguns legally in the District of Columbia, you'd be not be surprised that it's a very difficult process to, to get that right here. Um, but I was inspired by the, the terrorist attacks in Paris at the Bataclan Theater, which was quite some time ago now. And it, it just, even though um, it wasn't an American attack, it personalized it for me because I happened to be a music fan. And, and I, I realized that I was kind of free riding by assuming that, that someone else was going to keep me safe should something like that happen. I, I hope you guys win, win that argument because I think, I think you know, the, the best defense and, and perhaps one of the best ways to stop Hamas is to have a well-armed Israeli population. But you guys already agree with me on that, so we don't need to beat that dead horse. Um, I, yeah. I want to I get to the broader question, and this gets to the failure of centralized systems. Um, and, and maybe you don't have an opinion, maybe you don't know things, but I've, I've read a thousand different takes on why the Israeli government was unprepared for this attack. I've read um, some, some people that I think are pretty smart said that there was, there was a failure of, of, of centralizing um, intelligence on social media. Other people have said that that the the IDF knew it was coming but didn't take it seriously. What what is your? I'll start with uh, Moshi. What is what is your perspective, if you have one, on on why this happened? Um, well, that's a really good question. I think that uh, the word that has been repeated mostly in Israel since this thing started is the conception. Basically. Uh, the Israeli leadership, government, army, I don't know exactly who, had this idea that we could contain Hamas within Gaza and uh, just uh, basically uh, react to any small attack that they will be able to do and it will stay like that and we will not need to do anything more major than, uh, than that. And nobody even thought about the possibility of them orchestrating an attack of such scale and doing what they did eventually. So they didn't even try to prepare for such a scenario in a way that people are also saying that since this was so far-fetched in the, in the head of the armies, they even took resources from the area of Gaza and put them in other areas like Judea and Samaria. So basically, when you don't even think it is possible to, that something will happen, you don't prepare for it. It's basically repeating the same mistake that happened in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, which where nobody even thought that the Egyptians and Syrians would be able to just invade in one day and try to take over Israel in a very hard attack. So I think that's the main reason that our leadership were too proud to even admit that this was a possibility. Lior? I mean, I don't know from, wait, sorry. I don't know from uh, within Israel army, I'm not, I'm not there. I can't conspire. I think anything would be conspire, conspiracy, conspiracy. But what I know is that the Arabs in Gaza Strip wanted to kill as many Israelis as possible. So this is why it happened. You know, um, Ghazi Hamad, the spokesman of Hamas, had no hesitation sitting in a television uh, studio and saying, we are about to repeat the 7th of October again and again and again, and we will keep doing it. And when he, he was asked about the citizens of Gaza, he said, well, 
the United Nations have to take care of them. We have our tunnels and we will keep uh, hiding in the tunnels, tunnels and we'll do it again and again. Now, the Hamas charter basically stating that they are about to eliminate the Jewish entity from the Middle East, even though the Jewish entity was way back before even the Islam came to the, to the world. But uh, this is basically the uh, arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a, a threat to every civilized in the radical formation of it, of political uh, domination and uh, totalitarian uh, supremacy. Uh, this is a threat to anybody who seeks to live in peace near this type of entity. And we didn't, took it, we didn't took them seriously. And I can say that about the Yom Kippur War that uh, took place about 50, exactly 50 years ago, from the 7th October, it was the 6th of October, 73, when the Yom Kippur War broke. And nobody believed that the Egyptian aspired to war. And uh, I can uh, also compare it to 9-11 and... Uh, and possibly Pearl Harbor attack. Nobody believed it could happen, and even the the intelligence signal that were arrived that arrived in all of these cases there was intelligence signal. The 9/11 wasn't the first time. They tried before, seven years before. They tried to blow up the trade center in different method. So. Uh, so nothing was new here, but we didn't uh, want to listen and to consider it. And we didn't took them for the world, words. And this is very difficult to a Western and a liberal, uh, I would liberal in the, in the good sense of freedom-loving people, to believe that there is such evil in the world. It's a... Uh, it's really difficult for us to accept that somebody wants to kill you and doesn't matter what you do. And you cannot appease them. And you need to fight it out. And uh, we didn't want to believe it, we didn't believe it, and we didn't act upon this uh, reality. And uh, we got uh, the punishment that reality has to present to anybody who's trying to avoid it. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, Donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So a, a, another question um, that I've read, and then I've read people dispute this, and then I read people dispute the dispute, is that Netanyahu in particular was um, wanting Hamas to exist as a political opposition in Gaza because he wanted the, um, the, the political parties infighting. Um, one, one, do you think that's true? And if you think it's true, was that, was that a good policy to, to make sure that Hamas was part of the mix? 
May I start? Sure. First of all, I think under the conception that Hamas is a radical Islamic totalitarian arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Fatah and the PLO and the entity that established the Palestinian Authority is another anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish authority. Both of them agree, but they don't agree on the means. I mean, uh, why... uh, Uh, the both side of the of these two fraction of the Palestinian people just uh, disagree about the means to reach to the aim. Uh, one of them want a fast and fierce solution and the other one want a slow solution. But both of them do not recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state and independence and keep the entity of Israel as it is. So uh, Netanyahu thought, I believe, that uh, under the conception that all of this is manageable, he thought that it will be a good idea not to let these two powers to join together into one unity. Because part of the discussion was about connecting Gaza and the West Bank and creating one unity. It didn't work out. This was the basic idea behind the Oslo Accord. Uh, this was the idea when Israel pulled out of Gaza. Uh, there was a discussion about connection between Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, all of it uh, uh, cr- crash in front of, uh, collapse in front of our eyes when the Hamas actually showed that he had no uh, intention to look for a peaceful, a solution or to build the states even though they had all the means to it they could create the Hong Kong of the Middle East if they only like to do that they just don't like to do that so Netanyahu may adapt this policy but I don't see it as a big conspiracy and uh, and uh, the willingness to foster terrorism or something like that even though I have a lot of uh, a lot of criticism about the naivete, the stupidity of this type of policy toward evil. Uh, and But we see it all over the world. You know, you can imagine what could happen if the morning after the 7th of October, the Turkey would have uh, extradited, get the leaders of Hamas and put them into a trial, send them to international court for trial, and Qatar will say we will not finance uh, the Hamas anymore, and uh, and everybody and you, the United States would freeze all the assets of Hamas. We could live in a different reality, and control it. But this is not the reality. The reality is that there is a, a excess of evil in the world that finance, support, agree with this kind of ideologies. And uh, we cannot allow it to ourselves to appease them because they just become bolder and uh, more aggressive. We see it with the, even with the stupid little fraction of Yamanit's rebel, the Houthis. You see them how a small fraction of a dinghy uh, terrorist uh, stopping the world trade. And the superpower of the world standing there idle and trying to build some kind of coalition with uh, partners that even shy to let us know who they are in order to repeal them.
So under this uh, weakness of the world, uh, we cannot allow the policy that Netanyahu chose. We know it now. We didn't know it before the 7th of October. Uh, Lior. Actually, I think uh, Boaz covered the subject pretty, pretty good. Uh, I agree with most of what, of what he said. Uh, we had no idea that, I mean, I think it's a combination of two. Uh, one is that there's the enemy you know, in opposed to the enemy you don't know, and you don't know what it may bring. So you, you want to work or fight the, the one that you already know. Uh, what we didn't took into account is the evolution of Hamas. Like we saw them as not as such a big threat as they appear to be eventually. That's the conception. Uh, that's one. And the, and the other two is that all decisions are right for the time, you know. Uh, things are changing and, and, and I can't look about past decisions and say they were wrong because at the time they were right when now I know they were wrong. Yeah, I hope I'm kind of clear. Anything to add, Moshi? Uh, yeah, well, basically, I agree with my partners here that uh, basically uh, the strategy that our government had, especially Netanyahu for years, was to handle the conflict and it's basically keeping everything on a low flame and just handling this small events on the way and basically not seeing that in this time Hamas became this superpower basically backed by Iran and other powers like Qatar and basically gained all of these abilities that now we know that they have and we didn't handle them at the time thinking that we could just solve things on a low key basis so we it blew up in our face you know, we heard that there is about 500 uh, uh, kilometers uh, of tunnels underneath the Gaza, which is much more that we managed to dig in Tel Aviv with an international coalition of uh, companies to work on the metro on Tel Aviv. So, I mean, this this was uh, amazing revelation. We know they had some, we didn't know how much and so on. So uh, this was a surprise, and this was also the, the main surprise is uh, that we need to take our enemies uh, in the world. You know, they promise us death, and this is what they're plan planning to give us. So we better be ready for it. So, so let's wrap up. Um, I'm, I'm wanting all of you to tell me how we achieve uh, peace in the Middle East. And I'll give you about 30 seconds to answer that question. That's a joke. Um, but, I, but I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this from, from an American perspective. And, and uh, I think a lot about this quote from Thomas Sowell. Because um, as a libertarian, I'm trying to come up with a libertarian solution to this. But I, I'm more inclined to quote Thomas Sowell when he says that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Um, but I wonder... Um, you, you guys live with this. Obviously, you you are Israeli, so you have you you have that perspective. But uh, and I'll start with you, Moshi. Like, what what should be done? Um, is is what's happening right now the right solution, or is is there a, a different path? I think that what's happening right now is 
uh, the right direction, but it would have been much better if we had a similar approach before, so we wouldn't have needed to do such a large scale operation at the moment. Basically, I do believe that in order to promote peace and individual rights and uh, all these liberal Western and values that we have, in the Middle East especially, you need to come from a position of, uh, of you could call it power, you could call it strength, uh, basically saying that we are not going to go anywhere. If you're going to challenge our existence, we'll do anything to stay safe and keep our population whole and, and, and in security. And if you challenge that, so we will fight you with all that we have. You know, whenever our enemies understand that that's what we're going to do, and we're not going to just give up or disappear, we'll be able to talk about coexisting, living in peace, and, and promoting the rights of everyone in the area, basically. Lior. Uh, I agree with Moshe, but I would also like to add that I think my my misconception or what changed in me uh, since October 7th is realizing that the Islamic uh, uh, terror organization it's not it's not a usual enemy. So in the past I was thinking that trade will bring peace, and I was more like I had more like of Adam Smith kind of view about these things. I know that now that uh, people came from Gaza to work in Israel, we tried to achieve doing that, doing that, and it, it did not work. And this enemy is different, and it's cool. And I think, uh, sadly, and I'm saying that sadly because it's not. That's not the Israeli DNA. This is not how we look about things. I was I grew up in the nineties singing that all we want is peace. But I know now that when you have a cruel enemy, you need to be as cruel as your enemy. And sadly, sadly, nothing else will help. Well, I I don't think it's cruelty, but I think that uh, the only solution to the problem is decisive winning, nothing less than victory. It's not a tactical victory, not killing of another uh, head of, uh, of uh, this terror organization or the other terror organization, but actually uh, conquering Gaza, uh, either giving Hamas members and supporters the option to die or to give up, deportation, and re, uh, resetting of constitution, of uh, education system, everything. It doesn't have to be Israel. It could be some kind of coalition. The last time that the free states of the West did it, was with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And this, is, this was an historical lesson of taking a war-ravaged nation that looked to conquer the world and dominate and kill and murder and torture and pacify them. And this, was, this is the only way to do that. And, and it could be, and you know, a, a decisive winning of Israel could be also a good signal to all the supporters, sympathizers of Hamas, of terrorism, of uh, jihadists uh, uh, from all kinds of uh, shape that you can find in universities and other places. And, uh, uh, and uh, make sure that they will know that this road will 
lead them to a dead end. And uh, this is the only way to uproot it. All the other ways, and today uh, many of the Palestinians support the Hamas. If you will hold election in the West Bank and in Gaza today, you will get the Hamas elected to be the representative government. So this is a, a situation of endless battle. It will be much more costly if we will keep waging it for the next hundred years. Now, my assumption is that we will not be able to do that because we are surrounded with the world that doesn't like to face reality in this respect. Until it will get to the backyard of the, Brit the European countries and the United States, it's already, it's already nesting in the universities, in other places, but till it will be more effective in, uh, in your backyard, or at least in the US and Europe, you will not realize the threat. And this is what I'm afraid of. And I, and I uh, well, realistically, I think that we will not reach the solution that was reached with uh, Nazi Germany. We are not allowed to do what the allies did in Nazi Germany. Do you worry, um, and it, this is a, f a final question, um, it strikes me that the cruelty that that Lior references and we all understand with the October 7th attacks, it strikes me that Hamas was very consciously provoking a very big response from Israel in hopes of mobilizing um, an anti-Israel sentiment across the world, and it that's that seems to be working. Do, do you worry that that the the big response in Gaza um, is actually um, part of their design? Well, I, I think the first, they they plan it meticulously, putting babies in oven, um, uh, raping, massacring. This was intentionally provoked the most vicious, uh, I mean, the, it's, it was the most vicious attack that you can consider. And uh, of course, this will, this provoked Israel and changed the mindset in Israel. And, uh, but you know, when Israel strike hard, then we are uh, attacked on the public opinion of the world of doing too much. This is basically the story of Israel. Israel was the poster child of the West after the Holocaust until the 67 war, when it was weak, beaten, a country of refugees, and it's become to be pariah to the United Nations with the most, as most condemned state in the world after the 67, when it's when the world realized that Israel actually could take care of herself and is strong enough. And uh, this is, a, I would say, this is a, a sacrificial moral morality that apply here. Just, uh, you know, the UN summoned the year of uh, voting and Israel is the world leader in uh, voting against Israel, voting decision against uh, of uh, condemnation to Israel, while Pakistan, Turkey, China, Qatar, zero. 
And I can go on and on, Syria 1, Iraq 0, Iran 1. You take all the dictatorship of the world together and they never been condemned as Israel is condemned today. So I think we can either uh, suffer the world condemna condemnation or be executed here in the streets. So I think that Israel arrived to the point that we say, okay, condemn us, but we'll have to protect our life. I uh, agree with Boz in, uh, in his last point, basically. Um, Israel tries to be a modern Western country that upholds Western values and, and international law. The problem is that we are living within an area that is completely not Western and completely doesn't hold Western values as such. So when we try to uh, deal with these type of threats to our existence that are completely, I, I don't like to use the word barbaric, but October 7th was barbaric by any means. So when we try to deal with that, the only way that we can handle it is to uh, answer it with the same amount of force and aggressiveness with which we, we are treated. And of course, that is criticized in the world because it's not the uh, liberal thing to do, it's not the, uh, what the, the progressive West would like to see. But we're not living in the progressive West, we're living in the Middle East and over here, force is answered with force and respect is gained by being the strong one. And since we understood in Israel that we need to be able to speak that language if we want to deal with the threats that we have at home. Yeah. yeah. You have also to consider, you know, I wanted to add a line to my LinkedIn professional vocation as a border guard of civilization. But this is basically what we're doing here. Some people in the in the Ivy League may say you are colonizers, but uh, I think that this is a very good colonizing of bringing uh, freedom, liberty, uh, prosperity to a place that uh, was ravaged with war. And you see it even without Israelis around. The wars around us, and also this gives a proportion, you know, within in eight years, there was more than a million deaths in the war between Iran and Iraq. It's, we didn't arrive to this in 95 years of wars of Israel. We didn't even reach to 150,000 deaths. It's terrible, but, proportion, but if you consider the proportion, in four years in the civil war in uh, Syria, we had more than 300,000 deaths. In 12 years in Darfur, uh, about half a million deaths. I mean, the world is uh, judging Israel in a different standard that, than any other countries. And this is impossible to fight for survival under this standard in, in this area. Uh, Lior, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, yeah, so in continuing to what they, they, were, they were both saying, I would add that this matter of nationality is irrational, I think, in that case. Uh, it's not Israel's fault that it's strong. It's actually not a good thing. Like, I would like, love to live in a country that didn't have many wars, that didn't have uh, this uh, consistent uh, threat all the time. But Israel is strong, and it can't be, like, I, I think it can be accept, expected to... to, to you know, strike as it was stroke or something like that. Like if, if 
if they're only sending missiles, so only sending missiles, but only the same amount with only the same. No, <laughs> this is no not how you end wars. This is not how you finish uh, your enemies. When I mean when I'm talking about enemies, I'm talking about people who are trying to kill me just for being here, and just for you know existing basically. So I I don't believe in this question of proportionality and. I, I think it's ridiculous that it's ex actually expected because conflicts are not finished by that. They are only prolonged. Okay. Uh, thank you all for doing this. And uh, I hope that uh, sooner than later we can all gather in Israel in safer times. Thank you guys so much. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications and if you want to know more about free the people go to freethepeople.org